About every six months, we try to revisit our vision and our DNA as a church so that we understand who we are. As Pastor Eric said this morning, when we met at 8 o'clock, which we do every Sunday, to pray for you and pray for the ministry and pray for all the things God is doing as our fellowship, Pastor Eric reminded us vision is leaky. And it is. Vision is leaky. Just about the time I get sick of hearing it and saying it, People are just now hearing it and starting to understand it. And so about every six months, we revisit who we are, our purpose and our spiritual DNA that fuels what we do so that we don't forget and so that we stay on task and that we stay on mission, stay on purpose. We state it like this, for the glory of God, we will disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. That vision has three components to it. Now, we also time this because next Sunday starts membership class. Some of you guys have signed up for membership class. And so, uh, if you are interested in membership class and you want to become a member of Three Rivers Church, we do covenant membership, meaning you covenant with us, we covenant with you, it's biblical I could preach a whole sermon on that, but covenant membership is biblical. It's expected by Jesus, right? And so we do membership class so you know what you're getting into, who we are, everything. You can sign up on the website. I posted a link out for that this week. See, Pastor Jonathan, he leads that class. But we talk about that statement, and it's got three components. Theology, mission, and strategy. The theology is for the glory of God. For the glory of God. This is the theological vision of the Bible. God's glory was shoved to the back of man's desires at the fall. And Isaiah 48, 11 tells us that God will not share his glory with another. His name has been profaned and he will not give his glory to anyone else. By my count, 2,118 times the scriptures refer to the glory of God. Glory means weight. The weightiness of God. Kavod. Weight. The weightiness. You know that something's weighty by the attention you give to it. If Brad Poston and I were standing up front, one of the pastors at the other campus, history expert, and me, I'm not sure what I'm an expert in, but... And you had a question about European history. Brad being the historian, whose opinion on European history would have more weight? Brad's. Why? Because he's the expert. And so therefore you would listen to, take the advice of, and follow what he said. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about who we give weight to. Who we give credence to. Who we give our attention to. When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about who we obey. Who we follow, what we do. So we talk about the glory of God. It's not some abstract thing. Christians say the glory of God, but what do we mean by that? We mean the weightiness of God. Who we give our attention to. Who we give our allegiance to. Who do our actions follow. God's glory is the vision of the Bible. It is... The vision of everything written in Scripture that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be shown to be weighty because at the fall, we showed Satan to be weighty. His opinion was more weighty. His strategy was more weighty. And our parents followed the evil one in the rebellion. And Satan was glorified for a season. The whole vision of the Scripture is that we would see that God Himself, Jesus Christ, is more weighty because He is God and there is no other. 
So we say the theological vision of our church is for God's glory. That He would be shown to be weighty in everything we say and how we act. That we give credence to, number one, status to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So how would God be glorified? Well, that comes with this statement of mission. God is glorified by discipling the nations. Why do we say that? Because Jesus told us that's our mission. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. How would God be shown to be weighty? By bringing people from all nations into His enjoyment. And into His worship. And those people following Him. Counting the cost. Coming after Him. Giving Him credence. First place. Preeminence in all things. People from all nations. Following King Jesus. God is shown to be glorious. So God is glorified. When we disciple the nations. And teach them to observe everything Scripture has taught us to observe. As Jesus told us to go do. Well, that's a pretty large vision. The nations, there's a lot of them. This isn't a missions talk, but if you want to go back online and look at, look at the talk we did back on August the 14th on, on why the nations, we define that in there. Don't have time to do that because that's a talk in and of itself, but lots of people groups on this planet. It's a big vision. The glory of God among all peoples on the face of the planet. How in the world? Are we supposed to accomplish such a large vision? Well, that comes with the statement of strategy by being and producing radical followers of Jesus. This is how we will produce the fruit of discipling the nations. The word radical means of or going to the root or origin, fundamental, forming or basis of foundation, arising from or connected to the root source. That's what the word radical means. It's foundational. It's basis. It's the baseline. We hear radical and we think tattooed and pierced. Right? Not necessarily. Radical is foundational, fundamental, root, origin. John 15 gives us how we produce the fruit of the glory of God among the nations. And it's repeated 11 different times in John 15. Anybody know the word? Jesus taught us how to bear fruit. He said, here's how you bear eternal and lasting fruit that proves you're my followers. John 15. Anybody know the word? Abide. Remain. It's a fun word. Minnow. How I remembered that in graduate school. Minnows stay in the bucket. That's why you put them in a bucket. Therefore, minnow means to remain or to dwell. So how do we stay, how do we produce fruit that proves we are followers of Jesus? We remain in Christ. We abide in Christ. We dwell in Christ. Not more effort, not laziness. Don't, don't, abiding in Christ defies laziness. Lazy people can't abide because it's a discipline, disciple. Okay? Don't hear less effort and think laziness. Producing the fruit of the kingdom doesn't come by being a harder worker. Hard work is not evil. It's required. It's mandated. It's holy. But that's not how the fruit of the kingdom is produced. Hard work is a byproduct of kingdom fruit. 
It's not better systems. It's not better efficiency. There's nothing wrong with systems or efficiency. But they don't produce kingdom fruit. Lasting fruit of discipling the nations for the glory of God comes from our abiding in Jesus. Jesus taught us the strategy for raising up more missionaries. Ask Him. He said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, set a booth in the back and make an announcement and ask people to come volunteer. Is that how Jesus said to do it? He said, ask the Lord of the harvest. Ask the one who's in charge of the harvest to send forth laborers and he will do it. So we pray and we say, Lord, raise up more workers. And we stand with open hands waiting for the king of the universe to give us workers. So those of you this morning who the spirit is already speaking to about serving the body of Christ and its physical needs and deacon ministry. That's Jesus talking to you right now. Because we ask him, raise up laborers. He said, I'll do it. We abide. We abide. Abiding looks like going to Jesus. It looks like resting in Jesus. It looks like hearing Jesus. It looks like obeying Jesus. It looks like doing Jesus' work with His, with His methods. Jesus' methodology defies the system of the world. And you hear me say this a lot, and repetition is king when it comes to education. So we need to be reminded. We think of leadership and we think CEO. We think top down. We think organizational structure. And Jesus said no. When James and John came with mama's help to seek the top positions in his kingdom, Jesus said, this is not how we lead in my kingdom. Gentiles, sinners, lorded over one another, but not so among you. He who would be great in my kingdom must be last and servant of all. And Jesus illustrated on the night of his arrest by taking off his outer garment and getting down on his knees and washing his betrayer's feet. And Jesus said, that is leadership in my kingdom. So abiding in Jesus looks like using Jesus' methods. It looks like evaluating whether or not we're using Jesus' methods or the world's methods. And I will tell you, it is dirt simple to start using the methods of the world system in the kingdom of God. And they always abort. Because they're not His. And they're not made to work in His kingdom. We abide in Jesus by learning to wait. God's not in a rush. Never in a rush. You go read the Psalms and take count of how many times the Lord says, wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. You know, I'm tired of waiting. You say, wait, a lot, wait upon the Lord too much. No, wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We learn to wait. We celebrate fruit. We abide in Jesus when we receive pruning from a good father who desires to make us more fruitful, right? More fruit doesn't come through ease, it comes through the hardship of having branches cut off. We abide. We abide. We call this abiding relationship at our church the radical life. This is our strategy for how we will disciple the nations and bring God great praise and weightiness. Up, communion with God, in, community with each other, out, collision with culture. The radical life, up, in, and out. 
Abiding in Christ looks like abiding in Christ, knowing Him, walking with Him, loving Him, knowing His Word, His Word dwelling in you richly, your knowledge of Christ increasing in, your love of each other growing, your time with each other growing, your investment in each other growing, out, collision, working out to achieve the purposes of building the kingdom of God and engaging domains of society and making disciples and bringing things under the rule of Jesus up in and out. That's the radical life. That's our vision. That's our strategy. So ask the question, what is the spiritual DNA that drives that? What is the spiritual DNA that drives that? You guys know the answer to this question. It's four simple letters. KDSC. Kingdom, Disciple, Society, Church. As I walk through putting this together, I preach this all the time. The Lord was very clear to focus a little more on the church this morning. So I'm going to speed through the first three. And we're going to hang on the church for just a minute because she's vital to Jesus. Our DNA, the thing that drives our vision, is the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom. K. Kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of salvation. It is the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what Tim Keller says. The kingdom is the renewal of the whole world through the entrance of supernatural forces. As things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. As we read through the New Testament, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice Jesus doesn't preach the gospel of salvation. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom. The reason this is important is because Jesus didn't come just to... Now, don't miss here. Do not miss here. Okay? Jesus didn't come solely to save people from hell. That's the gospel of salvation. Because people are not the only thing Jesus created. We're the apex of created order and we're image bearers. Nothing else did He put His image in except humans. So we're important... But we are not the only thing Jesus is fixing. Genesis 1, 26-28, before the fall. You've heard this plenty, right? What is the creation mandate? Subdue and fill what? The whole earth. Eden was the launching point, not the hangout place. And so the whole earth is the Lord's. And what we discover as we read the Bible is Jesus intends to bring everything under His rule, including people. So Jesus is going to save all those the Father has given Him, John 10, from all nations, people from all nations. There will be representatives in the kingdom from every people group on the planet. He's going to save people. But He's also fixing created order. Because what do we learn in the Scriptures? Because of the rebellion, the created order has been subjected to futility. Romans 8, it groans under the weight of the rebellion eagerly awaiting the redemption of the children of God so it too can be repaired. Because in the fall, we broke, the dirt broke, the air broke, animals broke, everything broke. And Jesus intends to fix it. Because when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, where's heaven? Not up in the sky, on a cloud, with wings, too small for the fat baby body, and a harp. Heaven is here on an earth repaired and fixed with no sin. And the nations will come and bring their wealth before King Jesus and lay it at His feet and worship Him forever. In a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. 
So he's fixing everything. Does that make sense? That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of salvation says, get saved, hold up, don't get corrupted, wait for Jesus to come and take us to some place in the sky. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the good news of the kingdom. Matthew 6.33 tells us what we're to go after first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added. So you need your needs met? Come after Jesus and His rule over your life first. The weightiness of God. You show God's glorious by coming after Jesus first because you need Jesus before you need food. Or clothing. Or house. We obey Jesus first. And it's so easy in a needs felt context to go after our need before we go after Jesus. And Jesus said, in my kingdom, you come after me and my righteousness. Obey me first. And if I am first and you come after me first, I'll take care of every need. Now, we don't need to believe that. Right? Or move on to something else. This gospel of the kingdom changes people such that we want Jesus before we want anything else. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Before we got to any self-seeking prayer in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught us to pray, Father in heaven, make your name great. Hallow your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it's done in heaven. I haven't got to food yet. Why ask for food? Because we need strength to do His will to bring His kingdom and make His name great. Jesus taught us to pray like this. It's not like this is hidden. It's in the manual. It's in the manual. The problem with the church in the West is we want our values to be read on top of Scripture. And we want the Scriptures to bend to our values. And they just won't. This is what makes the church stick out. And makes it salt and light. Is we obey Jesus first. And you know what? Salt doesn't make food taste good until it gets on the food. Right? Light does not light up a dark room unless it is first in a dark room. The church as the community of the kingdom will make the difference when she is on and in places where she needs to be. And that comes from seeking Jesus first and coming after His righteousness And then when he starts supplying what we need, the world takes notice what's up with these supernatural people. What's the gospel of the kingdom? I don't have time to hang out on all these passages. I gave you way more notes on the blog today than I'm going to have time to go through. They're on there at MitchJolly.com. And so you can go look at all these notes. I'm not going to go through all these passages. And Matthew just hit one in particular that's my absolute favorite. Matthew 13, 44 This parable of the kingdom is glorious. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The rule of Jesus is so valuable that it's worth more than everything you've ever owned. Now imagine this. Remember, this applies also to the richest people on the planet. Can you imagine if you're Bill Gates reading that? When I read that, I put it in my context. Not that big of a deal. But when Bill Gates reads that, it's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that the kingdom of Jesus is more valuable than my billions? Yes. 
worth selling it all to come and follow me. The kingdom is powerful, supernatural. It's like yeast and dough. It magically spreads and multiplies. It's meek. It's the smallest of all the seeds in the garden. But when it has grown, it produces a tree large enough to host birds and nests and give shade to people. So it's meek. It's unassuming. Ephesians 1, 7-10 tells us that this purpose of the kingdom is that all things are being brought under the rule of Jesus. And the good news of the kingdom does something amazing. It not only takes people from the domain of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of the Son, the gospel also gives us a life mission worth dying for. And that is we would see and engage our domain of society, make disciples, and bring that sucker under the rule of Jesus. And that applies to everybody in this room. The gospel gives you a life mission, not just to escape hell, but something to live for when you go to work in the morning. That you'd break... The curse of sin in the domain Jesus has placed you in. And make disciples while you're doing it. And plant churches. Right? So the gospel of the kingdom does amazing things. What does it do? It makes disciples. D. The gospel of the kingdom is powerful. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This glorious good news of Jesus... And His kingdom rule, His coming and dying in our place for our sin and rising for salvation and ascending to heaven to general the great commission. The rule of Jesus is powerful and it saves sinners supernaturally. The gospel makes disciples. Well, what is a disciple? A disciple, according to Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20, is a person who has been made a disciple. Right? Because Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. Right? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them them to obey everything I have commanded. So they've been made a disciple. Somebody's preached the gospel. They've responded in faith and repentance. And now, they're a follower of Jesus. And then he said, baptize them. So they have been made a disciple through the preaching of the gospel. And then they follow Jesus publicly in obedience, in a public declaration that I've died to that kingdom, and I belong now to the kingdom of Christ. So there's public obedience. And then they are learning to obey everything Jesus taught, which, by the way, is lifelong. The last lesson of discipleship you're going to learn is how to die well. That's your last lesson. So nobody's arrived. Ain't nobody in here fully made into a disciple yet. You're still in process. Your last lesson in following Jesus will be how to die well. Because the last lesson he showed us on the cross was how to die well. Did you ever think about death being your last lesson of discipleship? It is. Dying full of the Spirit. Fully obedient to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That redeems death too, doesn't it? Yeah, Jesus conquered it. So it can be our last lesson. It's how to stare it in the face with a smile and say, Come on, bring your best. Right? So we've been made a disciple, we've been baptized, and we're learning to obey everything Jesus taught. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus who's been taught and is continuing to learn how to follow Jesus. We say a way to epitomize that in our church is Matthew seven twenty four to 27. A disciple is a person who epitomizes their relationship with Jesus in hearing and obeying. He who hears these words of mine and does them. Hearing the words of Jesus is not enough. James even said this, faith without works is... 
So if you say you believe in Jesus, but don't obey what Jesus said, you're not a follower of Jesus. Just not. Lip service is worthless in the kingdom of God. Hey, Jesus, even if I got to die, I'm not going to deny you. Famous last words of Peter, hmm? Hey, you're one of them, uh-uh. Hey, you got the accent. He got a bunch of redneck Galileans. You got the accent. You're one of him. Uh-uh. I saw you with him. And he calls down curses on himself. No! Oops. And he went out and wept bitterly, right? Famous last words. Lip service is worthless in the kingdom. He who hears and he who obeys. So those who are learning to follow Jesus, hear Jesus and obey Jesus. We say we practice discipleship in radical life. A disciple hears and obeys through their communion with God up. We learn to hear and obey by staying in the Word and listening to the voice of the Spirit. Secondly, we learn to hear and obey in covenant community. There's nothing like being able to speak to those you do life with, covenant life with, what God is doing in your life and get feedback, get affirmation, get encouragement, get strength to keep going. So we learn to hear and obey in community. Because sometimes we got crazy mess. We need to say, and somebody needs to go, mm, you, Jesus didn't tell you that. That's not here. You're not hearing and obeying. Because we need correction. We're not always right. But if you're isolated, you can talk yourself into being right all day long. Right? You can. You can swear you've heard the Lord. You bounce that off somebody who's walking with Jesus because you're trying to justify your sin. And they're like, mm, I'm pretty sure it's already written. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, crap. Which is often why we run from community because we know the second we get in community, we're going to face the fact that somebody else is reading their Bible too. And we just don't want to be told we're wrong. So we do discipleship by... Life with each other, we hear and obey together, or we hear and obey in communion with God, we hear and obey in covenant community, and disciples hear and obey in colliding with culture and making disciples. I'm going to tell you something. If you are not engaging your domain, I'm talking about bumping into darkness and bringing the gospel to bear in darkness, you will never fully learn to hear the voice of the Lord and obey Him. Jesus told this really cool thing in Luke and it's totally not in the notes. So I'm going off of, I think it's Luke 10 or 11, when Jesus said, you're going to be bought, brought before governors for my sake and people for my sake. And he told them this amazing thing. He said, make up your mind beforehand not to prepare what you're going to say. And you think, well, why? And Jesus said, because in that hour, it will be given you what you are to say. Meaning, it is completely, when we are doing the work of the kingdom, even to the point of being brought to account by governments and facing death, Jesus said, do not think beforehand on what you're going to say. Don't make up a prepared statement. It will be given you in that hour what to say. Meaning, we can hear Him clearly enough in the trial to speak what He said. Isn't that cool? That's awesome. You're never going to hear that if you're not in the trial. You're never going to get that unless you're bumping into hard things. Right? And you and I desperately need to learn to follow Jesus when it's not easy. Right? Well, the gospel makes disciples in domains of society. The gospel makes disciples and it does so in domains of society. 
Disciples of Jesus live in society. We are not to be isolated from the rest of the world. Paul made this super clear. If we're going to be isolated from the world, we've got to go out of the world. So we're taught to live in it without practicing its values. Disciples of Jesus dwell in domains of society. And God has uniquely gifted you and wired you in a fashion to function in a particular domain of society. We argue that's God's strategy for completing the Great Commission. God's wired some of you to be doctors. Did not wire me as such. You don't see me pass out? Somebody start bleeding. Over. I'm on the ground. John Mark's born six weeks early. Michelle Hankins going, you need to sit down. You're off. You're pale as a sheet, Jolly. Sit down. I'm feeling the bad news. Some of y'all like, ooh, broke bone. Awesome. When guys break bones in sporting events, I'm running from, ah, I don't want to see that. No, 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 no. And some people are like, ooh, let me see it. No, see, I'm not the see it. Some of y'all are made to be in the medical profession. And the last thing you need to do is go be a pastor. Last thing you need to do is quit your job and go be a youth minister. Because the medical domain is Jesus' domain. He made the human body. And part of His healing work is giving wisdom to men to practice. And that is as miraculous as the word spoken and it just coming together. Both are equally miraculous. One is not less than than the other. And if you've been made to be in the medical field, stay in the medical field, make disciples, and bring the discipline of medicine under the headship of Jesus. You may die never having achieved the mission, but one day someone will, and they will do so standing on your shoulders. Make sense? Right? So the gospel of the kingdom makes disciples in domains of society. And these core structures that build up this earth are there put there by God, and He wired us together, knit us together to fill them. You know what Psalm 139 says about us? You read that carefully? He knit us together in our mother's womb. And before there was ever even a day of ours that came to be, every day of ours were written in His book beforehand. <laughs> there are no mistakes in this room. No mistakes in this room. You were knit together by the wise creator Jesus. Wired to fit a domain. And He saved you and He put you there as an emissary and an ambassador of the kingdom. To make disciples and bring that thing under His rule. That'll help you get up in the morning, won't it? That'll help you realize, man, i got great purpose today. Domains of society are crucial in transformation of a city. Thinking about domains... Disciples engaging domains helps us to make some shifts. There have to be some shifts. We've got to move from needs to assets. Right? And, and, and in the Western context, we're taught to ask, what can you give me? How can you serve me? What product do you have that I can consume? That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom is not a commodity to be consumed. The kingdom... It's the people of Jesus that He bought at the cross with His precious blood and His broken body. And we are not a consumable commodity. We're a people that belongs to Jesus. And so we shift from what do I need to what has God made me to give away. 
So rather than walking in the back door and thinking, hmm, I wonder if the band's going to play my favorite music today. I wonder if Jolly's going to be on today. Or I wonder if somebody's going to serve me today. Oh, I hope the coffee's good. We walk in going, who needs me today? How can I give myself away today? Where can I give my life away today? Who needs encouragement today? You see the difference? We shift from needs to assets. What has God given me that others need to partake of? Number two, we've got to shift from programs to domain engagement. Programs have a tendency to become consumer-driven. They require people to lead them. And that isn't necessarily the way it's put together. We move from programs to domain engagement. We begin to ask questions like, what is my domain? It's easy to walk into a church and go, ooh, what programs do you have for me to be involved in? And what you need to ask is, how am I wired to fill a domain to make disciples? Because what you came in here today is not to consume a product, but to be equipped, Ephesians 4, for works of service. So we open the Bible, we preach from the Bible for the express purpose of the Spirit of God equipping you through the teaching of the Word to fill your domain to go make disciples. That's the program. That's the radical life, up in and out. That's how we achieve the mission of discipling the nations for the glory of God. Is you being a follower of Jesus, making disciples in your domain and bringing God great glory. Because every single one of us are vital in the kingdom. You've been given a gift, multiple gifts, spirit to empower you, and a powerful message that transforms when it's proclaimed. And so the entire church mobilized. Third shift we make is from working for the city to working with the city. We see this happening at Restoration Rome. You'll be hearing some more about that in coming days. Have a pastor's lunch this week. Judge Price will be there. The head of the Department of Family and Children's Services will be there. We don't serve. We don't give the city. We work with the city to provide solutions to foster adoption care crisis. Right? Because God has established the domain of government. And God has given us a foot in it. So we work with, not for. Engaging domains. Because one day, Revelation 21 and 22, government isn't abolished, it's redeemed. And we read in that, those passages that the kings of the earth will bring their treasures before Jesus in the heavenly city. Kingdoms aren't going away, they're just going to be fixed. Isn't that awesome? That kind of, man, I'll go Hank Williams Jr. on that one, man. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go, right? I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with that. I, heaven's good. Heaven, we got this weird thing of heaven we do. It's weird ambiguous, cloudy view of heaven. The Bible's not ambiguous or cloudy about the kingdom of heaven. It's a lot like Dixie. And Dixie's good. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. Don't go quote me on that one. I'm just kidding. That's you know what I'm saying. It's, it's like it's like Andrews, North Carolina in spring. I mean fall. Orange, beautiful, gorgeous, like high temperature, 65, low of 50. That's about the temperature the kingdom's going to be, I think, Jesus, one day. But, you know what I'm saying? Beautiful. The whole point is the kingdom is tangible. And it's glorious. And it's beautiful. It causes us to shift from managing men, ministries to leading members. We don't want people to manage consumable ministries. We want to equip you to make disciples. Then the church. 
the church, the gospel kingdom, make disciples in domains of society. And from there, Jesus builds his church. Jesus said, Matthew 16, I will build my church. So you know what? It's not our job to build the church. That's Jesus' job. Our job is to preach the gospel, make disciples in domains of society. And you know what Jesus will do? Jesus will build his church. If we start with the church, we're going to miss the kingdom. But if we start with the kingdom, we will get the church because Jesus is building his church through the powerful proclamation of disciples or powerful proclamation of the gospel that makes disciples. And when disciples are made and gathered, guess what happens? You have a church. This is what we see all through the New Testament. Right now in our, 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 our Wednesday nights as we're training our church, our Next uh, next group of pastors and church planners that are coming through. We're reading through um, a book called Biblical Eldership. And we're in that hard section now where it's just strict exegesis of New Testament passages on how Jesus is building His church. And the way Jesus builds His church is He makes disciples through the preached gospel and they gather up and they start meeting together and then and only then do they go back and appoint elders from within the church that has been planted because the gospel was preached and it saved people. So the gospel makes disciples in all domains of society, city centers, outlying country places, churches of Galatia, right? All these places in the New Testament, right? And then what happens? They form into churches. Why? Because Jesus is building his church through the preaching of the gospel. Does that make sense? Church happens because Jesus saved people and brought them together in covenant community. And then, and only then, is pastoral leadership appointed biblically. Jesus is building His church. And a church is a local gathering of people who have believed the gospel, been baptized, covenanted together, and loved to meet regularly under the authority of the Scriptures and the leadership of the elders to worship God and be a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God and ultimately to give God glory. And I footnoted that, and you can see where that came from. A church only has to do a few things. To be a church, gather in gospel love, to hear the word preached, sing, pray, give, make disciples, and practice the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Members are those who have covenanted together, lovingly care for one another, even through the practice of church discipline. So therefore, the church's mission is to be God's strategic plan for evangelism with one overarching mission. To go to all peoples to make disciples and teach them to obey everything Jesus has commanded, including forming new churches. A few things as we begin to wrap up about the church that are super important. Number one, the church doesn't have a prescribed form. The church is to take the form necessary to fit into its context. Which is why the Bible never prescribes have a building. I'll throw a little tidbit on you. You ready for something? The church in in America was founded upon the model of the church in Europe. Take a look at the church in Europe. Is that where you want to be? And if you're not familiar with what the church in Europe looks like, you need to get on the interwebs and do some reading. It's dark, dead, and cold. And you know how that happened? When Constantine 
established Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, she went from being a multiplying movement of yeast and dough and mustard seed in the ground to being an established government-funded entity that inherited all the pagan temples and she became a megachurch. And from that time, historically, there have been seasons in the life of the church where God would send forces to crush them so that she might go underground and grow again and learn to be persecuted and under difficulty so they might learn that the gospel is powerful, not man's structures. That's historical fact. The little church history. Do we want to be like the church in Europe? Heck no. We must come back to see what the scripture teaches. We are And we are the bride of Jesus Christ. We're a covenanted body of people scattered throughout a city to make much of Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to glorify Jesus by making disciples and teaching them to observe everything He taught them. It has no form. She just does specific things that define it as a church, which we just said what they are. Which is why we can meet in a school or another church's building and let them pay the bills. Kingston campus, ding, 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 right? Thinking it through, right? She can meet in a home. The church can meet anywhere she needs to meet as long as she is doing what Jesus said she needs to be doing. The kingdom is manifested through the church. The church is the community of the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom is in your midst. The church provides a foretaste of the future reign of Jesus Christ. And so many of us who grew up in the South did not taste the kingdom of God in our church experiences. We tasted the kingdom of this world in fights and folly and stupid things and cheesiness. The church is the place that is to provide a foretaste of the future reign of Jesus where we love, where we fight for, we have each other's backs, and we long to bring those outside in the darkness into the kingdom of the sun. The church is something Jesus builds. Said that already. Jesus is building his church. Number four, the church is God's agent of transformation. The church is God's agent of transformation. The church is the context in which the gospel takes us and transforms us. This is why there's no such thing as a churchless follower of Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus outside of covenant community. Number five, the church is an expression of God's Trinitarian nature. There's a great quote here. I don't have time to read for you. You can go back and read it. But the unity and diversity is the very thing that screams to our culture, come, come, come. Because so much of culture is broken through diversity, not in unity, fighting tribally. And inside the community of the kingdom, we have unity, we have diversity brought together under the unified culture of God's kingdom. Number six, the church is God's dwelling place. The church is God's dwelling place. I put three stars up beside this one because this one's huge. We quote 1 Corinthians 3.16 which says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We often read this passage and we apply it in the singular to people who we think ought to stop doing a habit we don't like that they have. Don't we? You're the temple of the Spirit. You need to quit doing that. Right? You're messing up the temple. Don't do it. That is not 
what that passage says. You know why? Because the you is not singular. The you is plural. And he's speaking to the church at Corinth. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, in the West, where we worship the individual, we mistakenly apply things without asking good questions and misapply them and lead people unknowingly into places the Bible doesn't teach them to go. Yes, I am, and you are individually, a place the Holy Spirit dwells. But Paul says here, and that's taught in other places in Scripture because we are all priests of God. Peter teaches us that because we have the Spirit dwelling in us. But the Spirit only dwells in individuals who are in unity with one another. Trinitarian theology practiced. Unity in diversity. Paul says here, you are the temple, meaning the church together. So therefore, he's following. This chapter is going to be talking about, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's moving on to chapter 5, where he's going to talk about why we deal with church discipline. Because we as individuals are not isolated from one another. So we bring sin into fellowship. We bring sin into everybody's air. So you, three rivers, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, where we experience the work of the Spirit most is in Unity together. Don't look for the work of the Spirit if you're isolated from the people of God. It will not happen. He will not gift you for service because He will only gift you to serve other people that you're in covenant community with. You are the temple. You understand? Jesus loves His church. And the church together is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. There's something magical about Ephesians 3, 8 to 11, where we learn that through the church, God puts on display to the principalities and powers, that's the angels and demons, those in the heavenly places, He puts on display for them His manifold wisdom through the church. The church is pretty important. The church is vital. And so I want to say to you, Three Rivers, as we close down right here, how do we practice this DNA in the church? Remember I told you I felt like just the Lord wanted to emphasize the church today. How do we live that out locally? As the family of God, we are to grow in love for and fellowship with each other. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. You can't grow in love and fellowship with people you're absent from. Our context in the West is such that everything around us will seek to pull us away from one another if we will let it. We must learn to grow in our love for and fellowship with each other. And that is deeper than a radical life group. That's daily loving each other as is needed. Radical life group is the beginning, but you know the beautiful thing about a radical life group? when you love each other and you do life together, is that kind of continues all the time. Places when you need help, people show up. Calls, lunch, encouragement, texts, help, right? Isn't that kind of cool? That it's not just Sunday night at 5 o'clock at James' house, but it's whenever you need help. Including them getting together and watching the Georgia game yesterday. Which is very holy. Touchstone. As the bride of Christ, 
we seek greater love for Jesus and submission to Jesus. As a unified body, we seek to love Jesus more and submit to Him more. Paul prayed for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. He said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Meaning, if Paul had to have that concern for the Corinthians that our what? That our thoughts would be led astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ, that means ours could be too. So as the bride of Christ, we seek a greater love for Jesus and submission to Him. Number three, as God's new temple, we increase awareness of His presence among us. 1 Peter 2, 4-8 As you came to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Become greater aware of His presence in our midst. Sometimes that takes praying together and sitting and listening together. One of the things I love to do when we meet on Sunday mornings is ask periodically as we've prayed together and sat quietly together, does anyone have a word from the Lord? Has the Spirit given you something for the rest of us? And every now and then we've got a really cool thing that happens there. Because He's present. And He talks to His people. He's not absent. Do you know He's here now? My hunch is that some of you already have heard Him. And He is calling you out for cool things. As the body of Christ, we increase interdependence on each other's gifts. Try this. Gather as a radical life group in covenant with other three of us folks who share our values and share our practices. Pray together. Discuss the sermon. Discuss texts from the sermon and applications that the Spirit gives you while you're sitting here. Let everybody contribute. Anticipate that the gifts of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 would be manifest. And watch Jesus build His church stronger. Try that. And finally, as a priesthood of believers, we have an increasing sense of God's joy in our praise and good works. Listen, Jesus delights to be among His people. Do you understand that? Jesus purchased you ransomed you from the domain of darkness to make you His own possession. Zephaniah reminds us that He sings over us and shouts over us because He delights in us. 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We need to have a growing sense that Jesus delights in our praise. Therefore, we worship because He's here and He delights in our praise. So let's not withhold it from Him. It is good and fitting that we sing praise to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would be glorified this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would be delighted as we, Your people, come to sing to You because that's altogether fitting. You gave us 150 songs that were inspired by the Spirit that came from the depths of misery and the heights of joy and everything in between called the Psalms. You gave us David who had music played by the Levites all the time in the temple because you delight in music, because you made sound. 
And you delight in skillful sound being woven together into music. And so it's altogether fitting and proper that as your people, when we hear your word, to come and sing to you because you delight in our praise of you. So Lord, be delighted in the praise of your people this morning. Be glorified as we count you as more weighty than anything we have in front of us right now. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish far more than we can imagine in the hearts of your people as you speak to them and lead them in the way of life. So be glorified now, we pray in Jesus' name.